little time in the disciplines this morning. Father, I thank you for each and every one of these men. I thank you for this day that you have made. Oh, Lord, it is from you. It's a day that is from you, and it's a day that is for your glory. And as we sit here this morning, we're reminded that the only reason we are here is because of you. Uh, You sustained us through the night. You raised us and woke us up this morning, and uh, we are here by your grace. And, Lord, we need interaction with one another. We need interaction with your word. We need time in prayer. And I pray that this morning would serve that end. I pray for every man that's here this morning uh, that you would attend to them. You would give us all minds that are attentive and sharp. You would give us ears that can listen. You would give us lips that can speak messages that are from you so that this place, these men in this place, can be built up and that Grace Bible Church might be the place that... uh, brings you glory this week so lord we come to you and we admit our need we agree with you that we are very needy Uh, we are dependent upon you for your grace and we ask you to bestow it upon us to lavish it on us in great measure and we pray it in christ's name amen all right here we are um spend a little bit of time in the disciplines this morning so if you have your notebook just turn it over and look at the back side and We're just going to mention again the important thing that we must do as men and the things that are very helpful to keep in front of us. Um, We want to make sure that everybody understands that we need to be men who are daily meeting with God and caring for our heart um, because we are in a mixed condition, that mixed condition that we heard about a month ago where we definitely have new affections from God within us because he dispatched his Holy Spirit into the believer And now they have affections for God that they didn't have when they were born. But we live in the same body that we were born with, and that body lies to us. And it lies to us at every turn. My body and my flesh lied to me this week. My body and flesh lied to me this morning. Um, So it is good for us. It is right for us. It is very necessary for us to put truth in our mind and our heart through the intake of God's word. Uh, It's also very important for us to communicate back to God after God has spoken with us. So we want to make sure that when we are reading God's word and he is informing us about himself and about his son and about us and about this world that we live in, that we are communicating back to God and agreeing with him about ourselves and our need for a savior, about ourselves and our sin, ourselves and what he is doing within us, gratitude, praise. We want to make sure we are people who are doing that um, a lot. Um, So if uh, I want to mention here this morning, if you have not yet selected a reading plan, I just help you understand. I encourage you to do so. To look carefully at the materials in the back of your build notebook and be thinking carefully about which reading plan would make the most sense for you. The reason why we put a reading plan in front of you guys every year is because uh, we have our Bibles right in front of us. Everybody has a Bible. Um, But we naturally kind of tend to certain sections of our Bible, the Gospels and some letters in the New Testament and some of the passages in the Old Testament. Well, when you're on a reading plan, Uh, What you get is you get the whole counsel of God in the course of a year or two years or a year and a half or whatever it is. And we need to hear the whole counsel of God because he gave us his whole counsel. So um, if you haven't yet selected a reading plan, you can sit with me or get in touch with me and I can help you figure out a plan that might work well for you. Or if you want to brew your own plan and and do something that, that works for you, if you're just getting started with the idea of a reading plan, we can do that too. But the whole thing in front of us is that we want to be taking in the full counsel of God over the course of a year or two, we want to be able to say, I've read what God has given to me. 
and I'm using it in my life, and it is actually really helping me. So just another plug for um, a reading plan if you don't yet have one. You ever find yourself sitting down in the morning and you are faced with your Bible, you're looking at your Bible, and you know you need to be communicating with God and praying, and you know you need to be going, and you're thinking, you know, I, I'm tired, it's dark, it's early, um, or it's late, and I've had a long day, and I know I need to be doing this, and I just don't have the gumption, I don't have the affection for God that, that I know I need. Um, I find myself in that situation regularly in the morning, I'm sitting down, and I've been up for a few minutes and trying to get started, and sometimes it's hard for me to get myself really going and into a, a meaningful time with the Lord. What I wanted to do is share with you guys something that, that really helps me in my prayer life and in my devotional life as I read God's Word. Um, it helps me be sensitized to who God is and who I am. And that is that I, I read what God has done to accomplish my salvation for me. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Paul is informing the church in Ephesus of what God has done to save the believers in that church. This is a church that Paul probably spent more time with than any other church. Uh, he probably spent close to three years with these people. And so these people had a, a greater depth of understanding than some of the other churches that he visited, like the Thessalonian church, which we'll be looking at this morning. So he's talking with these people he starts in verse 3 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm sitting there and I read this, I, I remember that I need to start by just informing myself who I'm talking to. The one that I'm talking to is the God of my Savior. Um, Lord, help me give you the reverence that you deserve because if you are the God of my Savior, you definitely deserve reverence from me. Verse 3 tells us, You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's when I remind myself, God, I'm, I'm not bringing anything to you. Actually, the way it works is you're the one who gives to me. And what you have given to me is a future with you in heaven. And that future is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm encountering God's word and I'm remembering, okay, this is where I'm going. And I'm going there because this is what God has given to me. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's where I remember, you know, Lord, I need to agree with you that you had a perfect plan for my salvation before you created anything. Uh, you had thought about this. You were very careful. Everything was very deliberate. Everything was very planned out. And you intended for me to know you. And this plan accounted for everything that I would do that would be offensive to you and your holy character. And you would still want me to be in fellowship with you. And in order to do that, you would declare me to be holy you would declare me to be blameless. I'm not wholly on my own. I'm not blameless on my own. I'm sitting here. I'm very well aware of everything that I've done that's full of blame. Um, but you declared me to be holy and blameless. You predestined me in verse 5 to adoption as a son through Christ Jesus to yourself. So because of your love, you devised a plan by which I would become a part of your family, a family that I don't naturally belong in. It's very humbling for me to remember that. The reason why I don't belong in that family is because I was born in sin, I was separated from God, and yet he chose to place me inside of his family. And there's something very important when we see that small phrase, as sons, adoption as sons. Um, in their heritage and in their culture, in the Greek culture and in the Jewish culture, 
the primary heir was the oldest son. They received all the benefits of the family as it was passed down to them if they were the oldest son. When a Christian receives adoption as a son, they inherit all of the blessings of being in the family of God. I was once separated from that family, and I find myself in that family because God predestined me to be adopted into that family. And that begins to help me understand, just again, who I'm talking to and how kind he has been to me. And he did this according to the kind intention of his will. Lord, it was your decision to adopt me, and you did that based entirely on your choice of me. There was nothing winsome about me. There was nothing intelligent about me. There was nothing good about me. Uh, Your choice to bring me into your family was based on your kindness and your kindness alone. That helps me remember who I'm going to be praying with and and how I need to be so grateful and so thankful for my time in this. And you did this um, to the praise of the glory of your grace. So often when I sit down and I've got my Bible in front of me, what I'm thinking about is my salvation and I'm thinking about God's goodness and his kindness to me. And that's so true. But God had something much, much bigger in view here than just simply saving me. He had something very much in view. And what he had in mind was the hearing of an eternal chorus of praise from every saint that he had saved forever into eternity. So God had something much bigger than just redeeming me. He had in in mind hearing praise, a chorus of praise from millions and millions and millions of saints forever. Um, And that's pretty humbling that I would be included in that. And he freely bestowed this upon me in the blood in his son, Jesus Christ. It just helps me to remember that, you know, Lord, there is there is nothing in which you are obligated to work here. There's nothing in which you're obligated to act. You're acting here. You're working here by your own free will. You did this freely. You did this of your own initiative. And you did this of your own choice. So the only reason I'm here, the only reason I'm saved, the only reason I'm abiding with you right now is because you freely bestowed all of these blessings upon me in your son, Jesus Christ. When I think through those things, those things are very, very helpful in helping me just get started in my time in prayer, my time in the Word. And and, uh, I don't always have the time to walk through it carefully. I don't always have the time to walk through it in the length that I'd like to. But putting some of those ideas in front of me makes my time in the Word and my time in prayer more effective, more interactive, probably more sincere and more genuine. My confession is more from my heart. It's less rote. It's less mechanical. So... um, My heart here is that that if you don't already have a good way of drawing yourself into good fellowship with the Lord, uh, that this might be helpful for you as well. We live in a world that is filled with relationships. We have working relationships. We have family relationships. We have social relationships. um, And because we live in a fallen world, all of our relationships bear the effects of sin and of that fall. And so we inevitably will find ourselves in relationship with people of all kinds of color. Um, We'll find people who are unruly. We find people who don't want to be ruled by anything. We'll find people who are faint-hearted in their circumstances. And we'll find ourselves in relationship with people who are weak. And um, one of our theme verses in Scripture and in Build this year is Ephesians 4.16, and that is that God's design for the Christian is that He causes the body. He uses the body to cause the growth of the body. And so when we're in relationship with someone who is unruly as a brother, as a brother who is faint-hearted or a brother who is weak, uh, God has a design for us and how it is that we can be used to cause growth in that person. And that passage that we're going to be looking at today is in 1 Thessalonians 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. 
And we are going to be looking at principles from this passage that God has given to us that will help us uh, come to the aid of those who have need around us. And the aim and the heart in giving this message this morning is for a stronger Grace Bible Church. Uh, The heart of all the elders, the heart of the leaders in this church is that when any man is in a conversation with another man in this body, it becomes clear that that man is, in one sense or another, an unruly man, or he is a faint-hearted man, or he is a weak man, that uh, the one he's talking with knows how to counsel him, he knows how to encourage him, he knows how to help him. Um, We want a strong Grace Bible Church. So we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5.14 this morning. And this is a very short verse. Um, It's not difficult to diagram. It's not difficult to understand what's taking place here. You'll also notice that it's an instruction passage. It's an instruction that has, it's a passage, it's a verse that has four instructions in it. Whenever you look at a passage like this where there's just instructions, uh, it really helps to understand the context that those instructions sit in. If they're just instructions by themselves that you aim to obey, um, you lose a lot when you you miss the context. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk for a couple of minutes about the relationship that Paul has with his church in Thessalonica. Paul first uh, traveled to Thessalonica on the second half of his second missionary journey. The first half of his second missionary journey was in what is present-day Turkey. And then on the second half of his missionary journey, he crossed over the Aegean Sea and into what's present-day Greece. And he started the second half of his journey, his missionary journey, up in Philippi. And there was persecution in Philippi against him. And so Paul left and he fled from Philippi. He traveled down to Thessalonica. And the persecution followed him. Jews were persecuting the gospel message and and the one who gave that message. And so Paul stayed with the church in Thessalonica for about a month. Uh, The New Testament tells us he was there for three Sabbaths. So he was probably there somewhere around a month. And then the persecution forced him to leave. And so he left and he traveled south further. And he traveled down to Berea and he ministered there for a short time. And he traveled to Athens and he traveled to Corinth. But the persecution in the church uh, that was in Thessalonica when Paul was chased out remained in Thessalonica after Paul left. And Paul had a great deal of concern for how they were doing. And so his traveling companions joined him sometime after he left Thessalonica. Silas and Timothy came to join him in Athens and in Corinth. And so Paul was very curious. He was very concerned with how this young church was doing in the face of quite strong persecution against them. They'd only been believers for three or four weeks, and they were facing strong persecution from Jews who had this this great understanding of the Old Testament. But these people had the gospel. So Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. And Timothy returned to Paul with a message for him about how they were doing. And so Paul is writing this letter with two things in mind. Um, He has his thoughts for them as um, he sent Timothy to them and hears back from Timothy how they're doing. And his thoughts for them take the first three chapters of the book, of the letter. And then he has instructions for them in the second half of his letter. In his thoughts for them, he shares his joy over their salvation and the way they've stewarded the gospel in chapter 1. In verse 8, he tells them, you know, he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. These are people who are baby Christians, and yet they're taking the gospel out from their own context. Paul recognizes and acknowledges their suffering because of the gospel in chapter 2. In verse 14, he said, you endured the same sufferings 
at the hands of your own countrymen. So he's agreeing with them that Jewish men have traveled to Thessalonica and are persecuting them because they believe. And then in chapter 3, Paul shares about how encouraged he is and how relieved he is as Timothy returns from his trip to Thessalonica with good news about how they're doing well. He says in verse 5, But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. So this is a young church. This has a genuine gospel reputation. They truly love the Lord. Uh, They're very, very young. And so they don't know a lot about the gospel. They don't know a lot about how to live out the gospel. So Paul spends the next two chapters telling them how to do that. These people were unbelievers before Paul got there with his missionary message. And they're very, very young. So he spends the first part of chapter 4 talking to them about purity. He spends the next part of chapter 4 talking to them about disciplined living. Um, he says in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you to do. So he's reiterating commands that he gave them while he was there, saying, you know, you need to be disciplined and you need to be working. This is a church that didn't understand what comes next when people die. So Paul spends the rest of chapter 4, the closing part of chapter 4, telling them about the rapture and how Christ is going to come and rapture away the church. But he also told them that there was a time of judgment that is coming, a day of the Lord, and how that's different from the rapture. He spends the first 10 or so verses of chapter 5 talking about that. And then he talks about how important it is to maintain good relationships with others in the church in verses 12 to 15, and we're going to be looking at verse 14. And then at the end, he talks about personal holiness through verse 22. So this is a good church. It's a young church. Paul has great thoughts for them. He's very thankful for them. He shares that in the first half of the letter, and then he has instructions for them in the second half of the letter. So let's read verse 15 of chapter 4, and we'll go ahead and look at it from there. Chapter 4, verse 15. Okay, so Paul says, We urge you, brethren, Chapter 5, verse 14. Yeah, that's good. Um, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Four instructions. Let's look at admonish the unruly. Again, it's a young church. There's suffering. There's a very difficult time. What was happening in this church was that many within this church decided to wait and wait and wait for the return of Jesus. But they decided to wait in idleness while they were waiting for Jesus. Paul must have come to know about this somehow. Perhaps Silas or Timothy informed him of that when they they joined him in the south. Um, Whichever, it was significant enough that he needs to mention this to them in his letter. And we see the basis for this in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, We urge you, brethren, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So Paul is instructing them to lead a quiet life and work at the tasks that God has given them. This had grown worse and worse after Paul's first letter. He sent this instruction to them And it was so bad that he actually had to include it in his second letter as well. 
And he gives more admonishments against idleness in his second letter. But let's take a look at what it means to be unruly, and then we'll take a look at what it means to admonish. Uh, The Greek word here is a a very interesting word. Uh, It's kind of a compound word, and the word means, uh, let's see, it means to draw together or to draw into arrangement. Um, So something that is is unruly is something that is not drawn together. Um, This word has its origins in military language, and it describes a battalion of men who hold their position in battle. They maintain a strong position. Um, So the unruly one is the one who has wandered outside of a position. And to fill in our blank in a Christian context, the unruly one has deviated from God's prescribed order. God has a design for how a person is to live, and the unruly one has deviated from that design. This is a person who has advanced beyond a position of wisdom or safety, and now they've put themselves in grave danger. They've extended themselves beyond where where God has, has commanded them to be. And this is an obvious character trait. It's an obvious character flaw. And what it is is that the person lacks the restraint necessary to live within God's design for how they should live. Their natural course of their mind is to retain their freedom in any way possible. To go beyond the boundaries that God has placed in front of them. The natural course of their mind is to step beyond those boundaries. Living under authority of another is not a consideration to them. It's just not part of their natural thought process. So what we have here is a person whose natural inclination is just to step beyond the boundaries that God has given them. They have no thoughts for staying within the order that God has prescribed for them. So that's what it means to be an unruly person. You're not ruled by the boundaries that God has placed in front of you. And what that person needs more than anything else is for those thoughts to be added to them because those thoughts are not already part of them. And those thoughts would be the thoughts of staying within God's order and God's design for them. And that's exactly what an admonishment is. It's a compound word in Greek, and it means to place something into the mind. So an admonishment is to place something into the mind. And what's being placed into the mind is a warning that supplies spiritual truth. Literally, to admonish is to place a warning into the mind. Admonishing is placing a warning into the mind. And notice the direction here. This is something that's coming outside of the person who's being admonished. It needs to be added to them because that warning is not already a part of them. Um, This is a stern warning. This is a sharp reproof. It's designed to rescue a person from from where they have strayed to, a person who has strayed beyond the design that God has for them. um, The warning is designed to rescue them and to draw them back into order. Um, The admonishment is, is coming with a message that says, listen, I love you. I'm coming to you to tell you that you need this. You really need this warning because it's evident to me that this warning is not in you. You do not have the freedom to live the way you're choosing to live in whatever area of their life it is. This admonishment is aimed at doing two things. Uh, First, it's aimed at making clear to the person what it is that their sin is, what area of their life it is that they've wandered beyond God's design and rule and order. We don't want to be one who says, your life is full of sin. We want to be able to say, in this particular area, this area, it appears to me that you have wandered beyond God's design for you in this area. And the second thing that it does is it points them on a clear path of repentance away from that sin. The focus here is on the kind of person um, who has wandered beyond that boundary that God has placed around them. Um, 
So this is a person who is consistently ignoring biblical principles in some area of their life, and they need a warning placed into their mind. That's what the admonishment is. It's a warning. This is not part of God's design for how you should live. It's not going to go well for you if you continue in this way. So as men at Grace Bible Church, we want to be those kind of men. We want to be the men who is equipped to graciously and gently go to a brother who needs to be admonished, who's living in some area of their life outside of God's design for them in that area. So what I did was I put together six principles that would help us in the fact and in the task of admonishing a brother. Because this is a difficult task to do. It's very difficult to go to somebody and to share with them uh, an area where you see it's plain to you at least that they're beyond um, the design that God has for them. So let me share six principles with you. Uh, First, remember who you were when God saved you. Ephesians 2.1 Remember that you were dead in your transgressions and sins and you were walking according to the course of this world. Remember the kind of person you were when God saved you. You want to go to the one who needs to be admonished as a humble man. And the best way to do that is to remember where you were when God saved you and where God has taken you from. The next thing we need to do when we consider admonishing a brother is we need to examine ourselves first. Examine yourself first before you go to them. Matthew chapter 7 is a great passage to help us with this. Verses 3 through 5. You take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother remove the speck that's in his eye. Whenever we go to somebody, Scripture is clear. Jesus is clear. The words of Jesus are trustworthy. What we have in our eye that obscures our vision somewhat is a log compared to the speck that is in their eye. So we want to remove the log from our eye first before we go to them. Then when we go to them, we want to embrace gentleness when we do this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, especially the first two verses. When you have one who is stuck in some kind of sin, we are to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is good to understand here. And uh, gentleness is not being a doormat. Gentleness is not being weak. Gentleness is the understanding that you're just an instrument in God's hands and God is going to accomplish the task here. We have a message to bring, but God is the one who is going to do the work, and he is pleased to use us. And so we come with a humble message, we come with a gentle message, and we allow God to speak through us. But we do it with gentleness. We want to make sure that when we come to them, we help them understand that the root issue, whatever the area is here that they're sinning in, we want to point them to their heart. Fourth principle, point them to their heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 Guard your heart with all diligence. From the heart flows the springs of life. Um, When you feed your heart, when you counsel your heart, whatever you put into your heart, that is going to work its way out into the rest of your life. Um, So you want to help your friend understand that in this area of your life where you've wandered beyond God's design for how you are to live, um, you need to examine the way you're feeding your heart that's resulting in this. Because if you just put a Band-Aid on the end of this behavior and cover the behavior... Um, What's in the heart will soon work its way out in some other area of your life. So point them to their heart and help them understand the importance of discipline one and shepherding your own heart. So they might agree with you and they might say, okay, so I'm I'm with you. No argument there. Yes, I need help with this. We want to help the brother, fifth point, understand biblical repentance. Understanding biblical repentance. 
In our discussion group, we got into a conversation with a book by Thomas Watson called The Doctrine of Repentance. We have it on our bookshelf out here. It's a very, very good book. If you want to open your Bible with them, you take them to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. And God has six principles by which the man can measure himself and see how he's doing in his path of repentance. That's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. It can help him understand that biblical repentance is characterized by a vindication of yourself. There's a clear path in your life away from this sin. So one way to measure your, your life and your repentance is to say, am I actually leaving this, this practice of sin? If people were looking at me, could they tell that I was doing this? Could they tell that there is a change in my life in this area? The second principle is that there's an indignation. There's a holy anger. There's an anger. There's a disgust. There's a displeasure over yourself for what you did after Christ has died on the cross in your place. There's a reverence for God that's based on an accurate understanding of God's holiness that promotes you to live in a way that's holy and repentant in life. There's a longing for a restored relationship with God that was harmed because of your foray into the sin. Biblical repentance is also characterized by a zeal. And today it's so important that we understand this because there are many messages today in our culture around us that say that you're repenting as long as you just sit there and think about your sin and don't commit it anymore. But scripture is clear that we must employ every means of God's grace in our flight against that sin. Repenting from sin is hard work. And the man can examine himself and say, am I truly laboring to be free from this sin by God's grace? And then finally, there's an avenging of wrong, that you're imposing a cost on yourself that's designed to lead you towards holiness of life in this area. So we want to help our friend understand how they can measure their repentance from a biblical perspective. And lastly, you want to be clear about God's grace to them. Romans chapter 6 and verse 9 Death is no longer master over you. God has changed you functionally to where death is no longer a master over you. Formerly, as an unbeliever, you, were, you had one option when sin was in front of you, and that was to run after that sin. Now, as a believer, death is no longer master over you. You are free to turn from that sin and run away from that sin, and that's by God's grace. So God, in his kindness, has always provided a path of escape for you, and he's given you the means to turn your back on that. So that's what it means to admonish the unruly. You've got a man who's wandered beyond God's design for him in life. And you've got an opportunity to speak a warning into his mind because his mind lacks that warning right now. And that was the case in Thessalonica. They had a church that was full of people who, um, some of whom were just being idle and they were waiting for the return of Christ. When in fact the instruction that Paul had given them when they were still there was to use their time well and to work hard and work diligently. So that's the first encouragement, or the first instruction to them is to admonish the unruly. That's something that we want to be good at as men here. There is a very winsome, pleasant way to do that. And God would be pleased to have a group of men who are well qualified and able to encourage one another and admonish one another well. Scott, yes? Is, is that only in the context of a local church? Yeah, he's writing to a group of believers here. Um, these are people who know one another. These are people who live together. Any believer should be free to admonish another believer, but they should do so coming to them with a good body of understanding of where that person is. Um, what, what's happening here is people are coming to one another, um, and they're coming to one another well-informed as to where it is that that person is unruly in their life. 
Um, they have a close enough relationship where they, they can say this with confidence. They can say this with accuracy. Most of the time, that person is in your church. If it's your next-door neighbor and you see him several times a week anyway, or something you know, he's a believer, he might attend another church, uh, you have the place to go to him if you have clear enough evidence that he needs to be admonished. Is, this, is it safe to say this should be gender-specific? Is it safe to say this should be gender-specific? Uh, that would be the preference. That would be the goal. Um, if you're married and you uh, have a wife who loves the Lord and you have a neighbor whose wife has some issue, it's probably best for you to share what you know and understand with your wife and have your wife go to her. We always want to be able to do this in a way that's upright. Um, I find myself in conversations with many women at this church um, because of my role here at this church. But when I do... Uh, I try to have my wife nearby. Um, I have conversations in lots of places, but I, I try to have them with my wife in the room or she's, she's close by where there's, there's no charge that could be brought against me in that way. So we always want to be as wise as we can there. Good question. Thanks. Okay, so his next instruction for them was to encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted is a combination of two Greek words. The first Greek word means small, and the second Greek word means soul. So the faint-hearted one is one who has a small soul, have a small spirit within them. And we can understand why, knowing a little bit about the context of the church in Thessalonica, these people might be faint-hearted. Um, this is a church, again, that is experiencing ongoing persecution. They're not deep in their faith. They've only been believers for a month or two. And they're experiencing this, this great oppression from the Jews who traveled down from Philippi to persecute them. So Paul is writing this with, with good reason, with good purpose. This person is um, one who has a small soul. They are feeling faint. They are feeling weak. They are feeling beaten down. This is the opposite of a person who is very assertive, very self-confident, fearless, this is the opposite of a person who has seen a constant stream of success in their life lately. Their success is in their battle with sin. They're succeeding at work. They're succeeding at home. Their parenting is going well. Their health is good. Everything else is going well. They're on top of it. Life is rolling along. That is not the one who's faint-hearted. Um, this is a person who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation remains in place. They keep waiting and they keep waiting and they keep waiting. And things don't change. The church in Thessalonica was waiting for the persecution to end, and it, it wasn't ending. These people are people who might begin to entertain doubts about God's concern for them, and they may begin to withdraw from fellowship. I'll give you a couple examples of what this might look like. Let's say you have a parent, and they have been faithful in their attempt to raise their kids with biblical principles. They've been faithful. They've been persistent. Sure, they're in a mixed condition. Sure, their sanctification is in process and it's growing. But they've been faithful. They've undertaken every means that they can to, to be a faithful parent. Um, but one of their children chooses to persist in disobedience and defiance and self-rule. And this person is going to be in your family for a long, long time. Years and years and years. And you've been faithful and your wife has been faithful and you've been persistent. Um, that parent can become faint-hearted very easily. I've been faint-hearted in the past. I understand that. Um, 
uh, parent figures in some ways that it's easier to give up and withdraw in some ways from fellowship so that your uh, weakness, your, your difficult situation is not on display and people don't see into your struggle. That's one example of a parent um, who might be faint-hearted. It's a long-standing situation which, outside of God's grace, is going to remain with you for quite a while. Second example, let's say you have a, a brother, you have a friend who has a near relative who needs long-term care, a lot of long-term care for them. And their, their demeanor towards your friend is very unkind. Say it's a family member who's needy of a lot of assistance. It's a parent or a grandparent. And they're just not gracious in the way that they accept your assistance. And that situation isn't changing either. They're going to be around for a while, and they're just not kind. They're unkind. They're very difficult. They're very demanding. It's very easy for that person to become faint-hearted as well, as they don't see any change that's in sight. Those are two examples from our day of what it might look like to be faint-hearted, where a situation is clearly beyond your control, and there's not a lot you can do about it, and it's very, very challenging. Turn back to chapter 2 in our letter, and um, we're going to see what is taking place and exactly why it is that they're faint-hearted. Chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches in God, in Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So Paul is acknowledging what I've already shared, that they are faint-hearted because of this. And notice that he uses the word endured. You also endured the same sufferings. This tells us that this is an ongoing, this isn't a one-time hit. It's something that is going on and on and on. They continue to endure this. That's why he sent Timothy to them, and Timothy returns in chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 3 and look at verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother, to you, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that's why Timothy was sent to them, was sent to them to encourage them. So let's talk about what it means to encourage. Um, another compound word here. This is really good. The Greek word to encourage means, um, to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Comforting words from close proximity. So there's a couple of things we need to make about, observations we need to make about this. That is first, that effective encouragement comes from someone who is near you. It comes from someone who is near you. If you're going to encourage somebody, you need to be near them. That means you need to be well-informed. You need to be around them. It doesn't mean you can't use FaceTime. It doesn't mean you can't use phone calls. But you need to be involved in their life. Because encouragement is comforting words from close proximity. This is a friend who's not kept away by a distaste over an unpleasant circumstance that the faint-hearted one might be in. Maybe his life is an intertwined mass of problems and difficulties and challenges, and that's not a problem for you. you. You don't mind being in relationship with somebody like that. This friend is also not kept away by commitments that they've added to their schedule to make themselves very busy. A long list of things they think that God has for them to do that keep them from being involved in the lives of other people. And it's very important for us to understand that if we're unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation to walk alongside a friend, we really don't have the opportunity to bring good biblical encouragement to them. So we need to make sure that we keep proximity in our mind when we're 
We're encouraging one another. So a question we can ask ourselves is, do I have any biases against some circumstances that will dull my readiness to encourage a friend? Is there anything about their situation? Is there anything about their setup that I have a bias against that wants me to just keep my distance? Another question we could ask ourselves is, have I set a level of activity in my life that prevents me from having the opportunity to even notice those that are faint-hearted? Am I so tapped out in all the things that I'm doing with my time, and I'm so busy, that I don't have the time to notice the one who's faint-hearted? Second thing that is very important about encouragement is that it contains not only a man who's near you, but it's a, a man who's near you with a comforting message. Now, it's a comforting message that brings true comfort. It's a message that does two things. First, it acknowledges the situation that the person is in. I understand that your situation is very challenging. It's very real. I'm not in that situation myself right now, per se, but I understand and I acknowledge and I want you to know that I see your challenge. And the second thing that it does is that it brings the hope of the gospel to that person. Encouraging your friend with gospel truth resets their perspective. Their situation may have been in place for so long that they've lost sight of the gospel, that they've lost sight of God's choice of them. And so we have the privilege of bringing that to them and speaking encouraging words to them that are separate from their situation, that are true regardless of what situation they're in. It can help them understand God's choice of them. God chose you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. It can remind them of Christ's suffering on the cross in their place. You need to remember that and understand that even in the midst of your trial that's, that's making you very faint-hearted, there is a day that is coming when you will not feel the torment from God that you deserve to feel. You will not feel the punishment and the anger and the wrath of God. And that should give you great joy in the midst of your trial. Remember God's grace that has been lavished upon you that is there to attend you in this trial. Even though you're in a difficult circumstances, God has given the believer everything they need for life and godliness. It's by his grace. You can't do this on your own. I admit that on your own this would be impossible. But by God's grace, you can step through this one day at a time. Or maybe it's even one hour at a time. Sometimes challenging, it can be very challenging to parent your kids hour by hour. And you want to help them understand that God is using this trial to grow you. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God's design with trials is that they would be used by us to grow us in our maturity and our completeness in Christ. That this is part of God's design to take you in maturity from the, where you were the day he saved you to where you will be the day he takes you to be with him. This is part of his design. And this is going to be pleasant, sweet fruit once you're on the other side of this challenge. And you will be able to look back and see what God has done for you. So we want to look at this letter and see how Paul encouraged them. He encouraged them in two ways. Uh, he encouraged them in their present position in Christ and their future position in Christ. Let's look at their present position in Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, We sent Timothy to you to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. So he was sending Timothy to encourage them as to your faith. Yes, you have all these challenges around you, but keep in mind your faith here. I'm encouraging you with the truth of the gospel, the present position that you have before Christ. This was not an easy trip for Timothy to make. 
the Jewish opposition was waiting for him when he got there. And so the encouragement comes by reminding them of their identity in Christ so that they do not become disturbed by this, so that they're faithful and they can stand through this. The persecution continued and continued and continued. It was so ongoing that Paul had to write about it to them in his second letter to them. Second letter, chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, We should always give thanks to you, dear brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He reminds them, first of all, you're beloved, and that God has chosen you for salvation. He's acknowledging their, their persecution, which is going on. So this soothing message has two parts. This comforting message has two parts. You're beloved, you're very precious, you're very dear to the Lord. And your salvation is something which God has been very, very thoughtful about from the beginning. Um, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Take your mind away from your challenge for a minute, from away from the experience that makes you faint-hearted, and just consider for a minute that God had your salvation in mind before any of this context was in place. So here he's talking to them saying that the God of the universe loves you and he's been thinking about you for a very, very long time and he has had your salvation in mind even before you knew it. That's encouraging. That's how you bring encouragement to the believer. But he also points them to their future position in Christ as well. Let's take a look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Um, Paul's talking about the kind of person that he was when he and his team were there and how they did not present a burden to the church in Thessalonica. They were carrying their own weight. They were providing for themselves. And he says that just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring you, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. This encouragement points to a future hope, the glory of his future kingdom. We want to reorient their thinking to include the future kingdom of God. Your, your relationship with God is not characterized, it's not defined by this present trial right here. You have an eternity with God that is coming, that is yours. And Paul writes to it, and he says, God has called you into his own kingdom and glory. He has called you, and he doesn't call as if he's waiting for you to respond. He's called you in a very effective, very active way that draws you into that. So the language there is very specific and it's being used to help these people understand that you will be in eternity with Christ because God has called you and he is drawing you into that. So that's an encouraging thing. That's the hope that they have. That's a confident and a certain confidence in a future event. There's no doubt about this event that it will take place and it's by grace. It's God's unmerited favor on you. So this is all God's plan and it's God's power that is going to enable this to take place. It's very interesting as you look at these two letters to the Thessalonian churches. These letters are very eschatological in places, in chapters 4 and 5 in the first letter, then chapters 2 and 3 in the second letter. And the reason why Paul is talking so much about the end times is because these people's life is very difficult today. He's saying all of these things about the future to encourage them in their struggles today. So that's a little bit about what it means to encourage the faint-hearted. You need to be near the person and you need to speak a word that's encouraging and soothing to them and comforting to them. And what makes it comforting is their present condition in Christ and their future position with Christ. So that's what it means to encourage the faint-hearted. And the third instruction he gives them is to help the weak. Normally when we think of the word weak, we think about someone who is physically not strong. 
physically lacking in strength. But the focus here is not really on a physical weakness. What I want to give to you is that that weakness here, the weak one has an unsound biblical foundation. The man who is weak has an unsound biblical foundation. So it's nothing to do with his structure or his frame. It has everything to do with his biblical foundation. It's a physical weakness that he has. This is a person who is easily misled. This is a person who lacks discernment. This is a person who regularly demonstrates poor judgment. They're not inclined to use God's word to inform their decisions. Um, They tend to view situations from a secular and not from a Christian or not from a biblical worldview. Um, And they fall into patterns of sin very easily. And all of that is because they lack the foundation that they need to make wise choices. And so what this person needs is this person needs help. So Paul tells them, help the weak. But the kind of help that they need is a spiritual kind of help. It's a help that informs them on how to use Scripture to lead their thinking and lead their perspective. So to help is to provide instruction from Scripture. Primary means of help is providing instruction from Scripture. This help is necessary because this person lacks the biblical foundation and uh, the lack of that biblical foundation is what keeps that paralyzed situation in their life. They remain paralyzed in their situation. They remain stuck in their situation uh, because they lack the biblical foundation to make wise decisions in this. Some of the people in Thessalonica were very weak, and they were, I'm sorry, they were very weak in their understanding about the return of Christ. That's understandable. They had been there for uh, believers for a month or so. Paul has to leave. They really don't have any idea what happens in the afterlife. They have no idea what happens. Um, And Paul has told them about this many times. Um, And what was happening in their weakness, because they had no idea what was coming next, is they were just standing around and they were being idle. Verse uh, verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul has to tell them, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business with your hands. Um, they were waiting for Christ to return. Um, they had very poor and very limited understanding of that return. And so what they were doing was they were just sitting around in a, a pattern of idleness. And so Paul has to help them with a very clear understanding of the return of Jesus. And we see that at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, he talks to them about the return of Christ and how Christ is going to come and rapture away the church. And at the beginning of chapter 5, he talks to them about the day of Christ, the day of the Lord where Jesus is going to come at the end of the tribulation period. And there is going to be Armageddon and there is going to be difficulty and challenge for all of those who reject Christ. So um, Paul's help comes to them to help them understand um, the need and the situation that they have and the place that they're in. So his help addresses a deficit in their understanding regarding the time frame of Christ's return. Because once he helped them understand what is going to take place when Christ returns, that gives them the proper framework to make decisions about how they're going to live today. I'm not just going to stand and wait for his return. He is coming when he chooses to return. He's coming at a time that's not known to us. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And so I need to live today wisely. And and that helped them. That helped them a lot so that they could live a life that is more glorifying to the Lord.
So what do we do when we have a, a brother who has a very immediate need, has a very present need, um, but he lacks a biblical foundation? Do we not address their immediate need? Or do we just go right to the biblical foundation? Well, I think the answer is we do both. There is times when a brother needs immediate help. And by God's grace, to the means that God has given us, we want to help in a way that's truly helpful. There may be times when we actually need to help them meet an immediate physical need. But the main aim here is to help your brothers strengthen their biblical foundation so they don't find themselves continually in this situation in the future. We want to change the lens through which they view their world. We want to change the, the principles that they use to make their decisions in certain areas. So let's say, for example, you have a guy who's always pressed to meet his monthly bills. He's always $250 short at the end of every month, whether it's his rent or his mortgage or whatever else. He always finds himself short. He's got a job. The Lord has given him steady, reliable income, but he always finds himself short. The main thing we need to do here is to help the person understand um, that they're abusing the financial margin that God has given to them. They need to understand principles from Scripture that help them view money rightly. Their main need is not the $250 that they're short every month. The main need is that they need to understand that these resources don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord, and you're just a steward of them. And you need to think of these resources as things that belong to God. And so we're much more careful about our use of our, our resources when we understand that they don't belong to us. And yes, they might need some money and know that it might not be the wisest thing to give them money, whatever that is. That's a decision that would need to consider lots of other factors. But the main thing is to help them with the principle of this money does not belong to you. You're just a steward of it. And once they get that right, they'll be able to think clearly about the decisions they make for their spending and their other commitments like that. Let's say you know a guy, maybe he's a younger man, and he's talking about a girl all the time. He's noticed her, and he's hollering after her, and he can't stop talking about her. And he talks about her appearance. He talks about her face. He talks about her figure. He talks about her, her funniness. He talks about all of these things that are so attractive about her. Um, and that's why he wants to pursue her. And our culture says, well, he's just smitten by her. He's just bit by her bug. But basically, we need to understand that what is happening here is this man has a weakness in this area. He does not understand how to evaluate um, someone's worthiness before him. He does not understand what God has decided and what God has said is precious to the Lord. First Peter chapter 3, God is very clear about the character qualities that a man is to find pleasing and desirable in a young woman. Um, a chaste and respectful behavior where the adornment is not really merely external, where there's not an undue focus on appearance. A hidden person of the heart, someone who's got a quiet and gentle spirit within them. What this man needs to understand more than anything else is he needs to understand that the right way to evaluate a prospective candidate for you is by looking at her through a spiritual lens. Does she have the character qualities that God has said are desirable in a woman that you want to spend the rest of your life with? What we want to put in front of us here is that it's very, very important to help the person primarily by giving them the spiritual principles they need to make good decisions. So we ask ourselves a couple questions that we might want to use to assess our readiness to help a man. One of those questions is, am I discerning enough to recognize when my brother is weak? Um, when I'm in a conversation with my brother, am I listening to the way that he talks about his time? Am I listening to the way he makes reference to his job, 
his money, his relationship with his wife or his relationship with his kids? Am I listening carefully to see whether there is evidence that there's a, a strong weakness in his life someplace that needs to be helped? Because when we listen to that, we um, are listening carefully, then we're ready to do something that we actually recognize. It's so easy to laugh off what somebody says and say, oh, yeah, and to find it funny and to find it humorous and say, I've done that too, and isn't that funny or whatever. Um, but we want to be men who listen carefully so that we can discern when there's a brother who, who has a weakness that needs to be helped. So again, we have a guy here whose, whose underlying condition is he has a spiritual weakness, a biblical foundation that's not as strong as it needs to be. And it is our task as believers to help them, to grow them in that. And the last principle that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica is that they need to be patient with everybody. <clears throat> to be patient is to be forbearing with those who struggle. To be forbearing with those who struggle. We need to understand that the struggling saint is on a path of sanctification, just like we are, and that God is every bit as committed to finishing the work that he began in them as he is to finish the work that he began in you. We need to remember God's patience with us, um, that for years and years and years, God was patient with us until the day that he had appointed for our salvation had arrived. So there's not a lot of depth here, but it's a very clear instruction. We know what it means to be forbearing with a person when they demonstrate their unruliness, when they demonstrate their faintheartedness, when they demonstrate their weakness. God has for us to help them and assist them in those situations, but to do it with patience, remembering how God was patient with us. So those are the four principles that Paul gives to us. We want to make sure that we're men who, who love our brothers well. We love them well by admonishing them when they need to be admonished by encouraging them well when they need to be encouraged, by helping them build a strong biblical foundation, and by being patient in the process of doing those three things. And it's true that these things are not all solitary standalone. It's very often that you'll find a man who, because of some area of weakness in his life, he becomes faint-hearted. Or because there's an ongoing unruliness in his life, he becomes weak. Or anything like that. So you might find yourself actually dealing with two of these things at the same time. And then in the case of those things, you need to be um, encouraging and you need to be admonishing. So it's not just simply one or the other. You might find yourself in relationship with someone who is demonstrating multiple of those. Anyway, the goal here is that we would be a stronger Grace Bible Church week by week by week and that that comes about by men who are actively involved in the lives of those that God has put around him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for these men. I thank you for your goodness and your kindness to them. Lord, I thank you that these men have an understanding of the gospel. Lord, I do thank you that you have put them in a context of a family or relationships at work and everywhere else. I pray that each one of these men, and I myself, would be the kind of men who seek to admonish when there needs to be. We seek to encourage when there's a need to, and we seek to help. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the ability to be patient with each one of these people as you have been patient with us. I pray for my friends here, Lord God, that you would attend to them, you would care for them, you would spur them on this weekend, that they would worship you well tomorrow. Lord, we love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.